You know, there are some things that I find fascinating. Uh, I, I look at them and I think, wow. Uh, but the reality is that I would never do these things. And one of those is to climb Mount Everest. Uh, I would think that would be the coolest thing to do. Uh, just imagine uh, how amazing that would be uh, as you pull up to the mountain and it's breathtaking. It takes your breath away. Uh, what an incredible thing that would be to climb Mount Everest, to experience uh, climbing Mount Everest. It reminds me of a story I was reading about a, a man who climbed Mount Everest. Um, there was uh, this guy who uh, did it, and he was, uh, he was really good at it. He uh, pioneered the ascents on the west ridge of the mountain. If you know anything about it or watch, I like to watch YouTube videos on it, so if you guys uh, have ever seen that, you're familiar with uh, what the different uh, ascents are, but uh, he pioneered, he started the, uh, the, the west ridge uh, of the mountain. And there was a time where he was looking at a, um, a photograph of Mount Everest, uh, and the way he describes it, I want us to listen to this. This is, I found this very interesting, the way he talks about this photograph of Mount Everest. Listen to this. Far from the mountains in winter, I discovered the blurred photo of Everest in Richard uh, Hallenberg's Book of Marvels. It was a miserable reproduction in which the jagged peaks rose against a grotesquely blackened and scratched sky. Everest itself, sitting back from the front, didn't even appear to be the highest peak. See, I find this uh, account of his time that he saw Mount Everest uh, interesting because if you think about Everest, uh, just hearing Mount Everest, you think of this amazingly glorious mountain uh, that is well known for its glory. Now, the photo, the time that he records this when he's looking at this, he says that it's what? A miserable reproduction of Mount Everest. It was a photo that uh, this guy is saying that it degraded the glory of Mount Everest, that it wasn't really what Mount Everest was all about. And that was because it was in comparison to other mountains, and Mount Everest didn't seem like it was actually that glorious in comparison to uh, the other mountains. And that was because the way the mountain was pictured. This made me think of keeping what is actually glorious and magnificent and spectacular, actually glorious, magnificently and spectacular, keeping it that way. See, as Christians, we cannot afford to have a miserable reproduction. See, not of something great in creation, but of a person, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't afford to have a miserable reproduction of who this is, of the greatness of this person, of God himself. We cannot degrade him and think less of him. We have to think of what he actually is, rightly of him, in a proper way. I want you to just think. When I say the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you immediately think of? Is it a man who walked around in Galilee doing great miracles? A guy who said a lot of wise things, who said a lot of good things that a lot of non-Christians agree with and uh, helped out a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, someone who did a lot of nice things for people. Do you think of Christ like that? You see, if, if your view of Christ is, is a view of what the scriptures declare, that he actually is this way, that he is supreme and preeminent, that he is God himself, well, what is that going to do to you? That's going to transform your life, and your life is going to be uh, one of worship and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you see him rightly as preeminent and supreme, as the scriptures tell us, 
Today we're going to see a passage where that's going to help us to see Jesus exalted, supreme, high above everything else. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you know anything about the Bible, this sounds like a familiar passage. You've probably read this before. This is uh, well known as an ancient hymn. Uh, so this might sound familiar to you, but I want us to read this with um, fresh eyes to glean something new about this passage. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, this passage is all about the exaltation and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gives us what Jesus is actually like, that he's not just a mere man or a wise guy, but he really is God exalted above everything that there is. We start in verse 15 through 17. We see there that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is our creator, that Jesus is our creator. Uh, let's look at this, this first phrase, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The um, Greek word for image here is icon. Uh, icon, it's a, it's a term used uh, to refer to a shape uh, of something or uh, the form of something. See, icon, just think about uh, how it's used today. Uh, the icon is a picture uh, of, of something uh, on your desktop or on your MacBook or something uh, on your iPad. An icon is something that you click on. It represents uh, like a computer program something that's behind the scenes. An icon depicts something, uh, the form of something, the shape of something. It should remind you, image. Where is that found in the Bible? Well, the first time that's found is in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. One of our, it's the first memory verse uh, for our read, pray, retain. Genesis 1, 26, 27. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that talks about the image uh, of God displayed in, in humanity, that God created man in his image, his icon, we are created to resemble and reflect God. Genesis 1, 26, 27, listen to this. Let us make man in our image, the uh, Godhead there talking to themselves, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, the image of God means we are, uh, we're created to resemble and reflect God. We are created with, a, uh, with rationale. We have a soul and a conscience. We've been given those things and the ability to make moral choices. And God's purpose was that we would reign and rule over his creation. If you know the context there in Genesis 1, he's talking to uh, Adam and Eve where he creates Adam and he tells him, hey, you're supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it to uh, rule over it, and to reflect uh, God's character in creation. 
And so this was man's duty. Uh, think about God's uh, character, his holiness, his goodness, his love. Man is supposed to reflect that and resemble that amongst other people in creation, where uh, man is exalted in this spot, and man is told by God to do these things, to resemble and to reflect God. Now, if you know your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 are all very good. Genesis 3, bad news. Genesis 3 is the fall of mankind, commonly known as the fall of mankind, where sin now enters the world, and the image of God is now marred. It's distorted. It's not how it should be, where man does not resemble and reflect God anymore. It doesn't do what it was intended to do. Humanity no longer does its function, its job. Verse 15 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Jesus. Jesus was not created in the image. The Bible declares that he is the image. There's a difference between Genesis 1, 26, 27 and Colossians 1, 15. That 1, 20, 26 and 27 is about man, about you and me, that we are created in the image of God. Colossians 1, 15 is about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the actual image of of God, that he actually resembles and reflects God's very nature and character, that he is the image. He doesn't uh, appear to be like God. He actually is God. Uh, if you know anything about the Godhead, he possesses the same uh, nature as God, where they're sharing this, this one undivided divine essence. And so, Jesus is very God of very God. Therefore, verse 15 declares that if we see Jesus, you are seeing the invisible God, the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And so as you see Jesus, you are actually seeing God himself. God himself. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has revealed what God is actually like in a person, uh, bodily, someone who has toes and eyes and fingers, where God before was not seen as that. Now, in the New Testament, we see Jesus revealing what God is like, and as we see Jesus, as you read about Jesus in the New Testament, you can understand what God is actually like by the person of Jesus Christ. See, by using this phrase, the image of the invisible God, Paul is asserting that Jesus is uh, the ultimate one that reveals what God is like where we were created to do that, resemble and reflect in a much different way. Jesus Christ actually does that. He actually resembles and reflects what God is like. It's God in human flesh, the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, incarne, so think carnesada. God putting on carnesada, flesh. Jesus putting on flesh for you and for me. This God would do this for us. Hebrews 1.3 is another similar, if you ever study your Bible or even look at a cross-reference, this is the other cross-reference that it gives for these verses. Hebrews 1.3 reads, he is the radiance of the glory of God, talking about Jesus, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is exactly like God because he is very God of very God. He's not some carbon copy. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. To think anything less of Jesus is blasphemy. 
that he is actually God. And so we start there, just declaring that Jesus is God. In this passage, you'll notice, we're going to go just verse by verse and even word by word. There's a lot of theology in this. So I'm going to try my best to do this quickly because there's a lot of stuff to get through. And so we got to go fast. But the second part, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, firstborn. That immediately, I remember reading this passage the first time I read it. I was like, whoa, it's kind of weird. Why does it say firstborn of all creation? I thought Jesus was God. How was he born? So this term firstborn can refer to first in order of time, like a family, uh, first one born in a family. And uh, what's interesting, as I recalled that first time reading this passage, maybe you, you just felt that right now. You had that thought. Why does it say that? Uh, it's because a lot of heretical groups have taken this verse and said that Jesus had a beginning, that he was actually created because it says that he's the first one of all creation. And so he's the first one that was created. That's what uh, people like Jehovah's Witnesses say, that Jesus was a created being, that he wasn't actually an eternal God. But this term can also refer not to only an order of time, but also to rank and status, rank and status. And so that's what I want you to think as we read the rest of this passage. Verse firstborn uh, refers to his preeminence in rank or status. Uh, think of the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau, although being uh, born chronologically first, uh, it was Jacob that received the blessing and the inheritance. And so we see this firstborn term in the Old Testament where it didn't refer only to time, but it referred to this other special thing where it was uh, rank or status. Uh, think of uh, Israel, where uh, Deuteronomy declares that uh, the nation of Israel was uh, God's firstborn. Uh, Israel was not the first nation, and so this has to mean something else, that it's uh, God's special covenantal love with Israel. And so this word means rank or status. It does not mean, uh, in this context, order of time. It's not about chronological priority, but it's about rank or status. Another great verse. This one says it very clearly. Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27. is talking about the Davidic Messiah. It says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So there it's talking about uh, Christ, where in the future he would be this firstborn uh, king. And so Jesus then would be the highest in rank. At the time, I mean, Jesus wasn't walking around. And so it, it doesn't even make any sense. So firstborn there in that passage, uh, really talking about David first, uh, would be Jesus, that he is first in rank, in status. So what we're talking about here is not about birth order, that Jesus was born uh, at one time, in his incarnation he was, but him being very God of very God was not born. This has to do with supremacy, his rank, what he's really like, who he actually is, where he is, in his exalted state. God is saying here that he's given, uh, the Father has given the Son this supreme status. He's saying, hey, Christ is ranked over all creation. If you notice, that's the word that it uses a lot, uh, creation. That Jesus is above creation. That his status is way above. That he's not like creation. He's the one who has all authority over creation. He's supreme over all creation. So, firstborn, not chronological, but positional. Not chronological, but positional. So, this being, Jesus, was not born at one time besides the incarnation, but was given and bestowed this status. 
And so, if you just contemplate that, just think about that, that this God, the image of the invisible God, the one who actually resembles, reflects what God is like, what that ought to do to us. The only proper response, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that we would devote our lives in worship to him, in worship to him. Our only proper response is to worship Jesus Christ as Lord over creation. That's point number one. Worship Christ as Lord of creation. Verse 16 starts talking about that Christ created all things. Just notice here, I'm going to read this. Let's see if this works. I was reading this, and I noticed, I was reading it out loud, and just listen to how many times it says, all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so the word all gives us the evidence that Christ is above all creation. Jesus reigns supreme over these things. And Paul here in verse 16 gives us a lot of prepositional phrases in order to really understand the scope of this um, of his supremacy, of his, uh, of his creation. We start off by, for by him all things were created in heaven. Heaven that has to do with all the galaxies and all the stars that you see up in the sky. I think like, uh, I thought like as I uh, was reading this, like the movie Interstellar, like something crazy like that, where God is saying, hey, Jesus is uh, reigning supreme over everything that is in the heavens that you have ever seen and things that you might never see. Uh, God is saying, hey, Jesus is over these things on earth, that it's everything on our planets. So from the biggest star in the universe to the littlest like ant uh, on an anthill, God reigns supreme over those things and has created those things. Jesus made everything, visible and invisible. Jesus created the very fabric of reality. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Uh, So Paul here is saying, hey, not only tangible, physical things, but Ephesians 6, uh, verse 11, that it's this spiritual world that is around us that we can't see. And so Jesus himself reigns supreme over those, that spiritual world, not just the physical, tangible world that we see. And here it refers to all these weird words, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. What does that mean? It has to do with angelic beings uh, that are different in ranks. So these are different ranks. In other words, the book of Hebrews uh, is all about this, that Jesus is above, exalted over all angels. The beginning of Hebrews talks about that. And so Jesus is above all these different ranks uh, of angels and demons. Why? Because Christ created all angelic forces. Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation, everything in the new universe. Jesus made it all, everything. Uh, all is going to be this common word that I keep saying a lot. Because that's what the Bible says, that all was created by Jesus. Astronauts and astronomers I looked it up. They have no idea how many stars there are in the universe. Like, we can guess, but we have no idea. We don't actually know how many there are. Jesus knows. He's the only one that knows. The God who created everything knows exactly how many there are. That should blow our minds that Jesus has made all these things. He knows them by name. He knows exactly where they are. He put them there. Jesus has put them there. Put those stars, and he knows them all. Every atom that makes up our entire composition of our bodies, Jesus has made. And so from uh, the biggest transcendent things, the giant things like planets and the moons, to even the smallest things, our atoms and uh, the, the things that are inside of us, our cells, 
Jesus is in control of those things and has made those things so that we properly work. Jesus made it all. Everything we interact with finds its origin in Christ. As I was reading this, that blew my mind to think everything that I see and, and feel and, and, and think of and Mount Everest and the smallest little things like an ant, God has made in the person of Jesus. God being three in one, three persons, uh, one God. Jesus made those things. Think, uh, the pen you're using right now, Jesus made that. It's, it finds its atomic origin in Christ. Uh, the eyeballs that you're using to see me right now, Christ fashioned those specifically so that you can see me. Everything Jesus has made, there's not anything about you that is not his, that it doesn't find its origin in Christ. Uh, common verses, John 1, 1 to 3, listen to this. In the beginning was the word, and by the way, verse 14 declares who the word is, it's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, in the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, very God of very God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, this word, this logos, Jesus Christ has made everything that we see and things that we don't see, everything. God has made that. Verse 16 says that everything was, uh, all things were created in heaven and on earth. It should make you think of a, a verse that you probably know, Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so Jesus is before verse 1 of Genesis 1-1. Jesus is before this verse. We don't even have, there's no verse for that, but Jesus was before that, before that page in your ESV. Jesus is before that. He is uh, what's commonly known as the agent of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. Verse 17, verse 16, we just read that, hey, Jesus made everything. Verse 17 now is going to tell us, hey, Jesus is still involved. It is not like Dia say that he just wound up the universe and boom, he just lets it go. Verse 17 says, hey, God is still involved and he is sustaining and upholding the universe. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He sustains everything. So right now, in this moment, Jesus is sustaining the universe. He's maintaining uh, that delicate balance that is allowing us to breathe and to be here. Jesus is absolutely necessary for the fabric of the universe to work. Without Jesus, we wouldn't be here. Without Christ holding all the particles and the atoms, uh, causing them to not explode, and we would all poof, we wouldn't be here. Jesus is the reason for that. He is our sustainer, our creator, and our sustainer, the one who upholds everything in the universe. Even think about our bodies. Think of two categories. The big things, like we just said, but also our individual lives, our bodies, cartilage, bones, ligaments, everything, molecular makeup. Your body is held together by Christ. Not only the world, but everything about you is held by Jesus Christ. Why don't I just, like, pass out and die right now? Because of Jesus. I don't know how that even happened. I don't know the science. I'm, I'm sure like, none of you guys know the actual science about all that. Jesus knows exactly why I don't pass out and die right now or you don't pass out and die. Jesus knows everything about that, all the science behind that. Jesus is our sustainer. He keeps us together. Just think about the opposite. The moment that Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to hold everything together, well, 
I fall over and die. Or this whole world like falls over and everything just explodes. There's nothing. Jesus is the one that is upholding everything so that we can live and breathe. Jesus is the agent. He's also the aim of creation. He's the aim of creation. At the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, everything was created for the purpose of Jesus. The purpose of creation, then, is to bring Christ glory. To bring Christ glory and attention. Glory, that word means to give attention, to give praise to, to point at. To point at. Um, you know those guys like, that stand on the side of the street that flip the signs that point to like a new like, furniture store? You know what I'm talking about? And, like, sometimes they, like, they flip them and they fall on the ground. They always pick like the weirdest, whatever. They, they're not even qualified for it. Anyways, they're like flipping it and they're pointing to this new furniture store. Jesus made us as image bearers to point to Jesus Christ. That's our job as image bearers. So everything exists in creation to point to him, to give him attention and praise and glory. That's what glory means. So think about that. What does that mean about us? Well, one thing, that the universe is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about someone else that is God. It's about God. It's about Jesus. The universe does not uh, center around you. It, it's not about us. This can be so hard, especially like being college students. Uh, we're so self-preoccupied. Like, it's all about us. It's all about me. The universe is not about you. It's about Jesus. You live for Jesus. You exist for Jesus. You breathe for Jesus. You work for Jesus. You exist for Jesus. It says that all things were created. All there uh, gives us two categories. That there is a creator and there's creation. Creator being God, Jesus, and creation. Everything else that is not him. Everything else that's not him. Everything exists for him. Everything that's been created is for him. We're his. There's not anything uh, in creation that God doesn't look at and say, that's mine. From the smallest baby to the oldest person ever, from the most random part of the world that no one's been to, Jesus says, that's mine. To New York City, uh, populated places, L.A., Jesus says, that's mine. Everything is for Jesus. It, everything finds their ownership in Jesus. He is the owner, and the one who, uh, who made it. And it's all, it's all for him. It's all for him. It's like, a, imagine, uh, yeah, this weekend, we're going up to Joshua Tree. We're going to be looking at the stars. We have that plan, like it's on the schedule. So we're going to be looking up at the stars. Uh, we're going to be gazing those stars, loving those stars. It's going to be cool. We're going to have telescopes out there. Uh, if you got, bring your telescopes, it's going to be cool. Loving the stars, right, the galaxies as we look up to it. Who also loves it? Who also is gazing at it? Jesus. Why? Because everything is for him. Why do you think our earth is so beautiful? Like, there's so many crazy cool things. I was just talking about uh, Machu Picchu in Peru. I don't know. Someone, uh, we were talking about, like, where we uh, want to go in the world. I said that. Like, it's a cool place. Like, I'd want to go there. Where would you want to go in the world? Think of that place. That exists for Jesus. 
That's for our benefit, but that's for Jesus, to exalt him, to bring him praise and glory. Architecture, art, it all exists for Jesus. You exist for Jesus. When, um, when NASA discovers uh, something new, I remember just being on Twitter, and like some, I follow the, 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 the NASA account and like, uh, other accounts about stars and galaxies. When they discover something new, it's pretty cool. It's like they have these cool images that they've taken, and I think, wow, that's sick. God never says, wow, that's very cool. He's always said that. Like, it's not at one time he's like, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. I get, yeah, that's there. God knows that that's been there. And so it's amazing to us because we've never seen it before, but that's always been amazing to Jesus. He, he loves that stuff. Why do you think he's made such a, a beautiful galaxy that we live in? It's all for Jesus. He knew it was there. And so he's the agents and the aim of everything. Question, personal, is this how you view creation? Do you think that you exist for yourself? Is everything about you, about me? Because it, it should be the opposite. That God created us about someone else, bring attention to him, that we exist for him. Your existence is all about him, about another person. See, sometimes I, I, I think our problem is that we want to make creation all about us. We twist it around. Where creation was intended to be for Jesus, for God, we twist it and think creation is all about me and trying to serve us. Where creation should serve Jesus, God. We can't make creation about us. We cannot. We can't make, uh, yeah, we can't make everything about us. It's, it, until you have creator on your resume, you're not going to be able to do that. There's only one person. That's God. That's God. It's not about us. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be uh, glory forever. Amen. Everything is about Jesus. Do you worship Jesus this way? Where your life is in worshipful devotion and obedience to Jesus Christ. Are you stealing worship from Christ where it's rightly due to him, but instead it's to yourself or to other people or to other things, other things in creation? His glory, is it given to you where it should be to him? Worship that belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. We can't ever worship anything else but the creator. Never worship the creation. Worship him as Lord over all creation. It says in verse 17 that he is before all things, that before anything existed, Jesus was there. He was there. It's what's called the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, his pre-existence. In John 8, uh, if you know this verse, this is a good one where uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or other people might say that Jesus was not God. He never said that he was God. Uh, Je Jesus was talking to some Jews, uh, and he says uh, this famous line, before Abraham was... I am. It's reminiscent of the book of Exodus where God says that about himself, that he is the I am. He's there. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the eternal God. And he says, hey, before Abraham was, I was there. I've always existed. And so Jesus declares that he himself is God. And it's interesting in that passage, because I've had this, where people say, he's not saying that. Well, what's the response of the Jews? They get mad, and they pick up stones to stone him. 
they recognize that he's saying, hey, I'm God. I'm the eternal God. Why? Because of their response. The Jews hated that, that he was saying that he is God. So Jesus, don't uh, let anyone tell you that Jesus never said that he was God. It's a clear verse where Jesus says, hey, I'm God. I, I, I am that. I am him. So how do we actually do this? How do we worship uh, Jesus as Lord of all creation? How do we properly do that? Remember, we are created to uh, worship Christ. That's our purpose, to honor him. So let's let's start with ourselves. Let's think of our our bodies, okay? Uh, Our minds, what we think of, that was created to bring him glory. Our eyes, what we see, that was created to bring him glory. Our hands, what we work with and do with our hands, that was all created to bring him glory. Our feet, where we go, our mouths, what we say, what comes out of our mouths. James 3 declares that, that you're either going to bless God or you're going to curse him. Everything about our bodies was created. Romans 6 declares that, that we have instruments either of righteousness or of sin. Everything about us, our fingers, like me, what I'm doing with my fingers, that was all created to bring him glory. How are you using your body to glorify him? Also, using and investing uh, the God-given abilities and capabilities uh, that we have to bring him glory. Think of, uh, I wrote this down, but I mean, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't really make sense. I was going to say your voice. Even if you don't have a good voice, like myself, you can still bring praise and glory to Christ. Where? In the shower, in the car, here at church, which, by the way, we should sing at church. Don't be scared to sing at church. Sing praises to God at church, not just in your living room by yourself. Why are you scared? Sing praises to God at church. Worship him with our voices, with, with our, our bodies. Um, a lot of you guys are artistic, uh, can, can do a lot of stuff with, with art. It might be, uh, you might paint, you might do like graphics and stuff. Um, a, lot of, a lot of you, you can use that and utilize that, your God-given capabilities to bring him glory. Are you using your art to bring him glory or glory to yourself? Sports and hobbies, surfing, uh, football, going to the gym, stuff like that. That can bring him glory. And utilizing technology. A lot of you guys are involved in like engineering and programming. That can bring him glory. Use that uh, purpose, purposefully to bring him glory. Uh, this, the thing is, we're all in school, right? We're college students. We're going to school. There's classes that uh, we don't like. Use those classes that are lame and boring to bring him glory. Utilize those to bring him glory. They're not meaningless. Uh, Point those classes to bring Christ glory. See, we have to focus our our work and our attention and energy to Jesus. Think of just work. Okay, maybe you're a barista at a coffee shop. Maybe uh, you work at a tire shop. Uh, Maybe you work in fast food. Maybe you're a server. Maybe you do hair. Do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Is your work targeted to bring the Lord Jesus Christ glory? Or are you just chasing a paycheck? Is it for that? Or is it, hey, I'm doing this because I want to make Christ known. I want to bring attention to him. I want to bring him worship. Is it about that? And why? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Uh, we want to be known as people who are Christ worshipers, who bring Christ glory, where someone is able to say, yeah, that person loves Christ 
because he's always talking about him. And every time he gets a compliment on his arts, on, hey, you're really good at this. Hey, thanks for that coffee. Yeah. I mean, where did you learn that? Well, I learned that in this. And then explain why you're able to do these things. Why am I doing these things? Because I want to bring Christ glory. I want to make him known. Make that clear. Glorify the Christ of creation. Now, another thing to point out is an implication of this passage is that we have a, a sovereign, omnipotent creator. Someone that is in control and is all-powerful uh, and can see everything. Omniscience, omnipotence, that he's all-powerful and he's our creator. And so he has authority and supremacy over all creation. Uh, we read in verse 16 that there's this grand scope of his uh, supremacy, that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's grand, it's giant. If you're a Christian, I want you to think, how does that make you feel when you, uh, when you know that Christ is supreme over everything that is created? What, what, what comes to your mind? Well, I know one thing that shouldn't come to your mind is anxiety and fear. Thinking, what are these people going to say to me? Uh, what, what if this goes wrong? What if this happens to me? If Christ really is Lord of all creation, well, then he's in control. And if he is your God, uh, David uh, in the, the Psalms would always declare, this is my God. Why that intimacy? Because he knows his God. And so if you're a Christian, you know your God. Don't let other things uh, steal your joy where you have anxiety and you're fearful. Because the reality of it is, this world is, it can be scary. I mean, there's a lot of sin, there's illness, there's disease, people die, catastrophic, catastrophic events, the news. I mean, you hop on the news. If you listen to Albert Muller, there's always bad stuff on there. It's like, wait, what's going on? Like, the world's like going into chaos. Well, yeah, so this world can be scary. But if we have a God who's in control of everything, who knows everything that's going to happen, and who creates everything, and so he's allowing these things to happen, and if you are a Christian, that you are in Christ, and Christ is your God, well, then you shouldn't be fearful. You shouldn't be anxious. There's no reason to. Do not be anxious. See, if this is all under the purview of God, this really should be a comfort to us, not something that scares us, but a comfort to us. We can be confident that our Creator has designed all of this, and that He alone is in charge. It's not anyone else. Just think of that. That's why when you think of theology, think of the character of God. If God really is a benevolent, a good God, well, then I'm going to be fine. It's okay in this world. I can walk as a Christian confident that I have my God next to me, that he's with me. And so I, I shouldn't fear. I shouldn't be scared of my future, of what's going to happen, of what's going to happen to me. If you are sick and you go to the doctor and they tell you you have this thing, well, if it is your God and he's in control and he's a creator, well, then you can be comforted by that, to know that he's, he's with you. You're in God's hands. I mean, really, you're in, in Christ's hands where this passage is talking about the supremacy of the second person of the Trinity, uh, Christ himself. So don't fear what is created. If, if our creator really reigns supreme, don't fear that. Just listen to Romans 8. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know Romans 8 uh, is this great passage talking about our confidence in Christ and what the benefits are of that. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Check these verses out. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you are a Christian, you should not be scared. Listen to this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, angels, rulers, the uh, cosmic powers that are over this earth, the demons, don't be scared of them, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation. Paul there himself is saying, hey, don't be scared of creation. Why? Because your creator is on your side. He's in control. Don't be scared of those things. He's sovereign over that, and he loves you, so we have nothing to fear. Your life is in his hands. So we should be able to say, like Paul there declares, if God is for me, well, then who can be against me? As a Christian, you can confidently say that. Paul then goes on to say in our passage that Christ is not only our creator and our sustainer, but he is uh, the head of the body, the church. Head, uh, that means authority. Uh, where authority rests. And so I think it's like if someone says, uh, this is the head of my school, you think, hey, that's the authority, the one in charge, the one who says, um, uh, what's going on? So just think of like ourselves, our, our bodies. Uh, your body gets direction by its, its head, right? You, you think something and then you, you do it. And so it starts with the head. And so like, I think, let's say you chop off my arm. Okay, that wouldn't be that bad. I'd still be alive. Like it wouldn't be that bad. Although it would hurt, like I'd walk around with no arm, right? I can use my left one, it's good. But if you chop off my head, I'm going to be like a headless horseman and like I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to be alive, I'm going to be dead. And so the head is uh, the, the most essential, vital part of the body because that dictates what the body's going to do. And so Jesus here is uh, said to be the head of the church, the authority. He's the authority. And that gives us a second reason to worship Christ, that he is Lord of the church. Point number two Worship Christ as Lord of the church. The word church here is this Greek word, ekklesia. Uh, ek, uh, outs or out of. Uh, and another word uh, similar, kaleo, uh, called out. And so uh, the church are people who have been called out from a sinful lifestyle to now serve Jesus, the called out ones. And so when we say uh, church, we're talking about called out ones. We're not talking about 120 West or 120 East or 140 or the main building, 150. Uh, we're talking about a people. Uh, it's, uh, it's those that are in the world, right? We're all here on earth. Uh, and it's also in this building. Everyone that's in here, if you're a Christian, you are the church. If you have repented of your sins and placed your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, well, you are the church. We're all the church. So the church is not a building. Let's just start off there. Church is not a building. So this is, this is what Christ left behind after he ascended and went with his father. This is what he left behind. The church that you and I then would participate in, to participate in the very life of Christ in his body. 
If he is the head, well, then we are the body, the church. So the body of Christ is this organization that's led by pastors and deacons or ministry leaders, as we call them here. That's this visible manifestation of God, of what God is like, what God should be. So God has um, sent his son to die. The son paid for our sins. He's left uh, for now. But in the meantime, we're in this thing called the church age where God is changing people from the inside out, uh, making them new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and he's now putting them together uh, in these different locations around the globe. And so that's the body, the church. And then Jesus says, hey, about that church, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so this church uh, will last. It's continuous. That's why we're in 2024. We're, we're still the church. We're in this church age, and we're waiting our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is so organically connected with his people, with us, uh, that gather all over the world, and not just here. Don't think the church is just here. It's uh, CBC, Compass Bible Church, but it's all over the world. There's a bunch of people gathering right now, this morning, it's Sunday, uh, that are all over the world. And so he says, hey, this is my body. And so, here at Compass Bible Church, we're just one outpost of that. We're just one outpost of this whole thing that's happening, this whole global network that God is doing called the church. Now, it's important to ask, well, why is Christ the head of the church? Like, why is he that? Why is he the authority? Well, I mean, we could say, well, because we just learned in those other verses, 15, 16, 17, that he's God. Well, of course, because he's God. Well, these verses say something else, that there's something this act in time that gave him validation and, uh, and credibility to be head of the church. Look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, God is creating a, um, a new redeemed humanity in the church. Now, because of the fall, humanity, as we said, has not lived up to its purpose, to what it was supposed to do, to reflect uh, and to resemble God. Now, in Christ, things have changed. In the work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, things are different. Where God now is creating a new creation in the church. Where the old creation was not able to do it. Now, in the new creation, through the work of Jesus Christ, he's able to accomplish this. And so, what is this new humanity, this new redeemed humanity built on? Well, it says the firstborn of the dead. The resurrection. Jesus' resurrection uh, is the foundation of this. The firstborn from the dead. Now listen to this verse, Romans 1.4. It talks about the power uh, that was in the resurrection. That Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christ would perform lots of miracles and they would be amazing things, breaking natural law. But the greatest of all was his resurrection raising from the dead because this was God's stamp of approval that said, hey, this is actually God. Now you know for sure that this is God. You can be certain that he is Lord of heaven and earth, reigns over life and death. God says, hey, this is how you can be sure by the resurrection of Jesus. And so this is what the church is all about. This is our main emphasis, that we know the one who is over life and death because of his resurrection. And so, it's not just any resurrection, but it's the resurrection of Christ. 
we already saw that the word uh, firstborn was used in verse 15. And we said that, hey, it refers to first in rank, uh, preeminence, position, status. If you just think about it, well, firstborn, does that mean that uh, he was the first one to be raised? Well, no, he wasn't. Uh, his bro Lazarus, John 11, says that, hey, he was raised from the dead first. And in that passage, Jesus raises him from the dead. So we see his, uh, his deity. Now, the only one that is able to say this phrase that he says in that passage in John 11 is only Jesus, that he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And so this type of resurrection is different, where it's not like that of Lazarus, where Lazarus would die. Jesus would then not die. This type of resurrection is different. Uh, it's supreme. It's the supreme resurrection. And because of this, we can be confident that we will also rise with him. First Corinthians 15 says that, that we have hope because of Jesus, that because he raised from the dead, you will also live with him. You will also raise with him. You'll be with him. And so there's no other resurrection like his. It's in this own different category. So Jesus is the beginning of this new humanity that God is building through the resurrection. It starts with the resurrection. And so the church is built on the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it's so important. Which, by the way, that it almost seems personally I find that uh, the resurrection is one of the most neglected aspects of the gospel. Where we talk about his life, death, but the resurrection is almost like put to the side. Where the resurrection really gives a validation to everything that has been said before this. And so, just by the way, if, when you're sharing the gospel, include the resurrection. Because it's almost like, okay, how can I be sure that Jesus actually, in one instant, absorbed the wrath of God? Well, the resurrection. Include the resurrection. Talk about the resurrection. Don't just celebrate it on Easter. Celebrate it all the time. The resurrection is so important for the Christian life that it gives you hope. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that, verse 12 to 20, that we're also going to live with him. Now, what's fascinating is that Jesus has included us in this, in the church, that you and I can now participate in this organism, in this organization called the church. And so, what should our response be? That we take this seriously. That if Christ is offering us to participate in his body, what a great thing that is. That it has started with his resurrection, and he says, hey, now I want to include you in this plan that I have for the church age. That I want to use you. I want you to be involved in this. And so, we have to come with him, not with like, nah, whatever, like, I don't want to be involved. No. With excitement. With like, wow, really? Like, you want to, I want to be involved in the church. That's a great thing, Jesus. You not only died for me, but now you're going to use me to serve you in the church. What a great thing that is, that we can participate in Christ's church. See, if Christ died for the church, which he did for you and for me, and one day he's going to come back to take his church, well, then right now the church should be our highest priority. It should be foremost, that we should love the church. See, the church is not something... Uh, that you just don't care about. Invest yourself in the church. Preoccupy yourself with the church. Give your time, your resources to the church. Energy to Christ in his church. So purpose yourself to invest in the church. There's a couple ways to do that that I thought of, which first one is you got to go to main service. If you're not going to main service, it's like, what are you doing? You, that's the first, that's like the most fundamental thing. You have to go to main service. That's uh, here at uh, Cummins Bible Church, we say, hey, you have to attend. Like, you, you got to be at our church. And sometimes we can think that just going to main service is really not that important. Like, no one's going to talk to me. Like, I'll just be in the background. Like, you know, I'm not going to sing. 
and I'll just dip after. Well, if one of your members doesn't show up for your body one day, right? If your thumb is like, oh, like, like it, no, it's like, what? It's like, how am I going to text? What am I, how am I going to use my thumb? Well, if you're not there, it's very important. Like, it's like, wait, where, where's the thumb? Like, where's he at? He's not even here. It's so important that you have to be at church. You must be at church if you're a Christian. I mean, that's, that's the first thing, right? And I get it. If you're sick or something, you're, don't come to church. But right, if, don't, like, don't make excuses to not come to church. Make an effort to come to church, to be involved in the church, that, that, just to even come to main service on Saturday, Sunday, to be here. And honestly, I, I think for our generation, I, I know I've had this before, where it can become so, it's like, whatever, like, is it really that important? Like, I get it, we're going through the book of Acts, but if I have my YouTube pastor, right, like, I'm good. I got my spiritual high during the week. Like, I, I got my faves on YouTube, like, I'm good. Or I got my podcast. Those people don't know you, which is something that I've personally dealt with. It's like, wait, they don't know me. Our pastor knows you. And so, that are these sermons that we preach uh, here at church uh, on the weekends, they're specifically tailored to you guys. I mean, not just to you, but to our whole church. And so our, our pastor lovingly uh, studies the word to bring the word to us, to be faithful to us. And so it's not the same if you listen to someone on YouTube, which is great. You can get a lot from it, but they don't know you. Your pastor knows you. And so that, that's probably the biggest thing. Be at church for that, to be, to, to be present at church how's your attitude towards church? Is it like, is it a struggle? Is it a drag to just come to church? Or are you motivated and excited to, to come on Sundays? It's like, yeah, I'm down to worship. Like, let's, let's do this. You, you wake up on Sunday and it's like, let's go. Like, I'm going to see people. I'm going to be at church. I want to hear worship songs. I'm going to sing. I want to sit under God's word as it's preached. Is that your attitude towards the church? Just think your attendance, right? You know, just think of your attendance. Like, how's your attendance been over the past, like, couple months? It's just sobering questions to ask. Like, how faithful are we to God's body, to his church? Second thing is attend, connect. We got to be part of a small group, which is great because we're here at the bridge, right? We're going to be in small groups after this, which is great. Now, how's your participation in small groups? Are you a passive spectator? Or are you an active participant in small groups? You just kind of lay back, you know, kick your feet up, and it's like, I'll let everyone else talk. You know, I'm not going to talk. Small groups are there so that we would grow and be edified, where God has placed uh, uh, ministry leaders uh, in our lives so that they would uh, be used by God to strengthen us, to point us to Jesus. And so be excited to go to small groups, even though sometimes it can be hard, right? Some, some person's like talking about something, and it's all about this person, and then it's like, oh, no attention for me. Well, be there for that person. Be actively uh, involved in small groups, attend, connect. Last thing is that we would, we would serve. We would serve God's church. Now, this, like I said earlier, right? If your thumb's not working, it's like, oh, how am I gonna do this, right? Imagine my leg's not working one day. Like I'm gonna hop around on one leg. I'm gonna need the other leg, right? I can, I guess I can hop around all day, but like, it's not the way it should be. And so, with our serving, how are you serving God's church? Are you someone that, that tends to make excuses, like, I'm sorry, I can't be there this weekend, or I can't be there this day. Well, it, I mean, if you miss, like, it's fine, right? Other people are going to hop in, right? You're still going to be able to hop on one leg. The body is. But it just, it's not the same way it should be. And so uh, invest yourself. Make an effort 
to serve God's church wherever you are in, in a serving post. And if you're not, well, there's a lot of opportunities. Serve God's church because God has saved you. If you are saved, you are called to serve. Don't be okay with just making a habit to like put it off or to not, to not want to serve. Serve God's people. Also, uh, this comes from Ephesians 5, that we respect the church. Respect the church. Um, if we just go back in our comments and thoughts that we've had about the church. Remember, the church is not a building. The church is people. How have you talked about the church to other people or in your own thoughts? Like, have you like, degraded uh, the church in your thoughts and to other people? How are you... What are your comments like about the church? This is God's church. Ephesians 5 says that, that this is very special to God. And so we have to respect her. We can't speak ill of her, right? If It's like, imagine you came up to me and you're like, hey, Jose, I don't like your body. It's like, what? That's kind of weird. And like, what if you just say more things? And it's like, you're just mean to me. And you say things about what I look like. That's the same way with God. If we speak ill of the church, God hates that. So sobering to just think about that. Man, I need to be careful how I treat God's church, what I say about her, about God's people. And so I know it can be so easy to just point out flaws in God's church. But instead, and I know this can be tough, do something to fix that, right? If it's really, because I think it was Spurgeon that said it, right? If, if you're looking for a perfect church, well, you're not going to find one because we're full of imperfect people in, in our local body. And so, no, the church is not perfect. So don't ever, like, we need to start with that, right? You pull up to the church, right, our, our, our building. Don't think, like, oh, everyone needs to be, like, super nice to me. Like, what if someone does hurt you? Don't leave the church. Don't leave the church. Don't think, like, this is the end of the world. People are going to hurt you in the church. Why? Because there's imperfect people in the church. So don't leave the church. Don't think less of the church because someone hurt you. Talk to someone, get through it, and realize, well, yeah, I mean, if it's full of imperfect people, I get it, I understand why someone said that to me, why I didn't feel uh, very good after that sermon, why I hate how that, that felt after small groups when someone said that to me. Full of imperfect people, and just, to just think about that. Well, then, yeah, I mean, some stuff's not going to be very good. I mean, we're not all, we're not perfect. And, I mean, this one is sobering, too. That this has to do not just with our local body here, but it has to do with other churches in our area. They're God's church too. And so don't ever think like Compass Bible Church, like, let's go, like, yeah, we're the best. And like these other churches are like, nah, like, no. Nah. Come on. This is my church. Well, there's other faithful local bodies around here too that are involved in God's global network. And so that's the same way. Don't just respect our church, our people here, but respect other people and other local bodies too and how you talk about them. Have a, a respect towards them. Esteem them. Now it says that because of the resurrection, this should be preeminent. So this should have first place in our lives. The church should. Christ should. So we should put Christ first in everything. See, everything has to be influenced and driven by the preeminence of Christ. And just to think about that, putting Christ first. I, I hear my, my small group guys in my, in my narrow group say that. Like, hey, my prayer request is like, 
I'm going to put God first this week. It's like, what does that mean? I know that's like a common thing, like, let's put God, put God first. What does that actually mean? Well, it, that's what I mean. Like, we can't just have head knowledge. This knowledge about what this might mean has to transform our heart. That it would actually, that Christ would actually be first in our lives. That Jesus would, would be first in our desires, in what we want, what we think of, uh, in, in our studies, in, in, in school, in our work. That Jesus would be first preeminent in our relationships, in our decisions, in the things that happen, events in our lives that happen, that Christ would be first, that you think of Christ first, who he is. That's what it means to be preeminent, that Christ would be preeminent. Now, this isn't like second-level Christianity. This isn't like you get saved in like five years down the road, like Jesus is going to be number one in your life. Like, you know, those other five years, like you're really struggling. It's either Jesus first or he's not. It's just so sobering to think about. Is Jesus first in your life? Is he preeminent? Jesus calls you to have that if he is your Lord. So let everything be governed by the preeminence uh, in your life. We also said, it also says that he is the fullness of God. And so it, in Jesus is the sum of all, of all God's divine attributes. Fullness. And it says that it, it was pleased to dwell in, in Jesus dwell, that's that word, to be uh, at home permanently, to be in something permanently. So this shows us something of the relationship, uh, this special relationship, uh, this eternal relationship in the Trinity, in the Godhead, that God the Father is pleased to have all the fullness of his uh, divine attributes dwell in this person, in Jesus. So what is the reason for that? He dwells in Jesus for what? Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. So there's a purpose behind uh, all the fullness of God dwelling bodily in Jesus, that he would reconcile all things to himself. Jesus has accomplished reconciliation for you and for me. And that's point number three. Worship Christ as Lord of reconciliation. Worship Christ as Lord of reconciliation. There's two types of uh, reconciliation. There's this cosmic reconciliation that is all things, but then there's also this individual, personal reconciliation that the Bible talks about. So what does it mean that uh, he reconciled uh, the world to himself? I just write down Hebrews uh, 2, uh, verse 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Listen to this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Namely Jesus. So if you know anything about the book of uh, Hebrews, it's like I said earlier, it's the supremacy of Jesus over all things. Specifically in this passage, it's over angels, over angels. And so the idea being communicated here uh, is this idea of, of rulership, of rulership, uh, that as we read uh, th those verses, that we should go back in our minds to the beginning of Genesis, where God in in involved this rulership into uh, mankind. He creates the world, and he says, he has a rulership and rights over what 
he created. And so he creates the world, and then he's, he's the rightful ruler over creation. And then, in Genesis 1, he entrusts uh, this delegated authority to mankind that was made in his image, and they were to subdue the earth, to rule over this created order. Now, in other words, the, 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 the beginning of God's design has, from the beginning, has, has been God's design that he would rule over all things, that man would, that they would be in subjection under him, that they would actually subdue the earth with this delegated authority that God gave mankind in the image of God that we are created in. Now, if these verses sound familiar, I think we had a revival on that on Psalm 8. This takes you back to Psalm 8, where Psalm 8 is, uh, it's all about where God has entrusted man with this delegated authority back in Genesis. And so, the question should be, I mean, how's that going? How did it go in Genesis? The rulership did not go well. Genesis 3, immediately, it was like, well, they didn't do it. They forfeited, forfeited their authority and said, no, we want to be like God. And so, mankind has sinned. Romans 8 says that creation has been subjected, uh, subjected to futility. And now mankind, as a result, is separated from God. Isaiah 59, 2, that there is a separa- separation between us and God. And so, this starts with uh, Adam and Eve, and then with us. We have not lived up to how we should have done it. And so, there's this cosmic separation. Cosmic separation. So, in, the, in Hebrews, we just read in that passage, I don't know if you noted, that mankind was created in the image of God. But then, in verse 9, it says, but Jesus. But Jesus. Verse 9 says, we've, we've just seen what, what happened with, with uh, mankind, where we were created in the, in the image of God, but we said earlier, hey, Jesus was created, is not created, but is the image. And so there's this difference. Now, Jesus, when he takes on flesh in his incarnation, rules over this created order as a man the way God intended it to be. So Jesus was the perfect man who actually was able to do what God intended man to do in the first place. And so, in other words, cosmic reconciliation is everything coming under the rule and authority and submission and subjection of Christ the way it should have been. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, this is reminiscent of the Davidic uh, Messiah who was going to reign Jesus saying, hey, I have that authority now after I've risen from the dead. So Jesus, after his substitutionary death, has stepped into this, has, uh, has now gotten this, this authority. And so our text says uh, that he would reconcile all things to himself. How? Our verse says, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And so... His cosmic reconciliation is coming under the, the rule of Christ. Everything coming under his rule is now done by Jesus' death on the cross. That's cosmic separation and cosmic reconciliation. 
Now, what's up with the in individual separation? We need individual uh, reconciliation, and that's found in Jesus. Uh, just write down uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 through uh, 21, where we start off by reading that uh, there's hatred and enmity between us and God, and so we're in desperate need of being reconciled to God. And so we all come out separated and spiritually dead from God. And so we need, everyone needs reconciliation. Everyone does. In that passage, God calls us to be reconciled to God. The offended party then gives us the means of salvation. The means of salvation. The means of salvation, what is that? Two things, his life and his death. His perfect life and his substitutionary uh, wrath-absorbing death. How do we get that? By grace through faith, where we don't deserve that, but it's a deposit. As we deposit our, our trust into another person, his perfect life and his death for us on our behalf, and his resurrection. So what we need, what every person in this room needs, is perfect righteousness and needs uh, your sins to be paid for. So Jesus on the cross absorbs that wrath in place of me and you, and Jesus is punished in place of my sinful life, where I should have died, and then even more so, you get treated as if, as if I lived, as if you lived Jesus' perfect life. It, like, doesn't make sense. It's like, why? Because God is, is love, and he's, he's full of grace. And so Jesus does that for us. This is personal reconciliation. This is incredible. This is all done by the love of God. And so we get cosmic reconciliation and personal reconciliation. Have you received this? This reconciliation where you're now friends with God. You're now not butting heads, but you're friends with God himself. That all comes by one person, by Jesus. What have you done about Jesus? As Paul says there, hey, if you haven't done this, well, I implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, you have to be reconciled to God by doing two things. By repenting of your sins, saying, God, forgive me for my sins. I have been sinning against a holy God, and then deposit your trust in someone else. If you are a Christian, which is most of us here, how are you worshiping Jesus, the one who reconciled us? Well, every day should be a worship unto him, thinking about this, that he has done this for me, that he has accomplished cosmic reconciliation, but also personal reconciliation for me. See, because Christ is, is Lord of creation, because he's Lord of the church, because he's Lord of reconciliation, all done through one person who is God, well, we should be spurred on to live lives of worship lives of worship. And so my prayer is that because of his absolute supremacy, Jesus would be preeminent in our lives. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have done something for us as you've reconciled us, but you're also a Lord of creation. Help us, God, to see Jesus as he really is, as he actually is, and may we live and worship to him. I pray for small groups right now. pray that you'd bless our time. Help us to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ.
and to obey you and to love Jesus more as a result of who he is and what he's done for us. Pray in the name of your son. Amen.